Whether one is listening to this in Myanmar or from outside the country, we know this is a very difficult time for many of us. In trying times like these, we can all use a bit more care and compassion in our lives. So on behalf of the team here at Inside Myanmar, I would like to say in the traditional way Metta is offered, may you be free from physical discomfort. May you be free from mental discomfort. May you not meet dangers or enemies. May you live a peaceful and happy life. And may all beings be free and come out of suffering. And with that, let's move to the show. Biku Chintita on Inside Myanmar Podcast. Bonte, thank you so much for joining us here. You're very welcome. All right. So I hope to have a conversation about a rather sensitive topic that I don't find is really being aired or examined publicly, from at least from what I've been able to see. Uh, during this conversation, we're going to be examining the monastic response of the Sangha to the military coup in Myanmar. But more specifically still, we're going to talk about the role of Situgu Sayada, who is the most important Buddhist monk in the country today. But before we do that, I would like listeners to know a little bit about you and your spiritual path, because as we try to understand who Situgu is and the motivations driving him, we should know something about the person who is telling us this. So, I first became acquainted with you several years ago from your autobiographical book, Through the Looking Glass, which details your growing disenchantment with lay society and your eventual renunciation into the Buddhist monkhood. And spoiler alert, you ordained under Sitagu Sayada as your preceptor in Myanmar. Uh, for me personally, I really enjoyed this book when I read it. I actually, I think I read this in a monastery in the Sagayan Hills. I was living in a cave there for some time in my own practice. And I really enjoyed reading it because there's just so little literature that's examining this real life and where you ended up in Myanmar and your interactions there. And I've long wanted to talk to you just about this part of your life and go over that spiritual biography of how you ended up. But, of course, during this terrible military coup, we don't have that luxury at the moment to be able to spend the time I would like to there. But I think it's still important to learn a little bit about where you came from and why you ended up wearing the robes. So for listeners who have just heard of you at this moment, can you share a bit about where you came from and how you got to where you are now? Oh, okay. So I came to Buddhism rather uh, late in life. In, when I was in my 40s, I'm 72 years old now, I uh, had a academic background. I was a professor of computer science, uh, did research 
in, in the corporate environment in uh, artificial intelligence. And in 2001, I gave it all up, gave up my career and decided to dedicate myself to Buddhism entirely. Uh, I had discovered Buddhism in the, in the years prior to that and was absolutely fascinated with it. Uh, it, it. It seemed to answer a lot of my questions. I originally practiced in the Zen tradition, Japanese Zen tradition. Uh, I was a um, one of the founding members of the Austin Zen Center here in Austin, Texas, and uh, and then ordained as a Zen priest in 2003. I found myself the Zen, uh, the, the Japanese Buddhist tradition has almost entirely lost its monastic component, and I found myself more and more drawn to monastic practice. What you find in in Japanese Zen is um, a priesthood, uh, married priests largely, uh, who do not follow all of the precepts and clearly are not celibate. I wanted to renunciate completely the more I learned about monastic life. And um, so while I was a Zen priest, I began exploring other Buddhist traditions and looking for an opportunity to ordain in a Winnie tradition uh, and uh, look far and wide. I visited a lot of monasteries, but one of the monasteries I began visiting was the uh, Sidagu Buddha Wihara here in Austin. At that time, there were four Burmese monks living here uh, in a house trailer and it was on 16 acres of forest, basically, and uh, very primitive. But I made very good connections with the Burmese monks. They're just wonderful, sweet people. And um, uh, I talked with the monks over a period of years. In 2008, I finally decided I want to become a Theravada monk. I was, uh, uh, I ordained as a a Zen priest in 2003, uh, but I became very interested in the uh, pure Winia, the pure monastic tradition, the way the Buddha established it. I had been around the block many times in my life and uh, found nothing uh, that was worth hanging on to. I wanted to to undertake the path of renunciation completely or as completely as one can reasonably. And, um, and so I began looking around for other opportunities for ordaining in a Winia, full monastic tradition. And um, I looked at, uh, visited many monasteries here in Texas and also in California where I'm from. And um, I befriended the uh, the monks here at the Sidagu Buddha Wihara. I first came out here in 2004 and uh, made very good connections. At that time, there were four Burmese monks living in a house trailer in the middle of 16 acres of forest. It was very undeveloped, very primitive. Um, and... Um, 
I uh, came, uh, I visited here over a period of years while I thought about ordaining uh, in the B in as a bhikkhu. Uh, and in 2008, I finally, after a visit to a Bayagiri monastery in California, I decided the Theravada school is uh, is for me. I decided I wanted to ordain as a Theravada bhikkhu. Uh, Shin Ariyadamma, who was the abbot here in Austin, uh, agreed to ordain me. Actually, he offered to ordain me. And uh, he said the best thing to do would be to travel with him to Myanmar in early 2009 uh, to ordain there and then remain in Myanmar for a year. So that's what I did. He arranged for his teacher, who was Sidigusiero, to ordain me. So he is actually my preceptor. Uh, he gave me, me my name, Chintita. It's a little bit of a funny story. He uh, he didn't. I had never met him. I didn't really know who he was. And uh, but he uh, sat me down. He says, "We need to find a name for you." Uh, what day of the year? Uh, what day of the week were you born? I said Tuesday. Okay. Uh, how long did you think about becoming a Theravada monk? I said about four years. He said. Four years, long time. I'll call you Chintita, good thinker. So um, what I learned was I was quite surprised uh, by Sita Gusiero because he is has such a big operation. He uh, has so many things that, that he is doing all at once. So uh, up to the up to now, he's founded over 40 hospitals in Myanmar. He's kind of known as the monk who gets things done. He's founded three monastic colleges, a meditation center. Uh, he's done work in providing running water to a large part of Sagaing Hills in central Myanmar. Uh, and he's done disaster relief work, particular. Lee, uh, after the Nargis um, uh, uh, cyclone in 2007. Uh, so he's quite active. He's, he's somebody with a, a big heart and is very much engaged in, in, in social service projects and also in, in uh, Buddhist education. Uh, he's known in Myanmar largely because he's a wonderful public speaker. He doesn't come off so well in, in English, but he, he does in in Burmese. I kind of think of him as the Billy Graham of Myanmar. Yeah. And because he can uh, attract very large audiences, he can attract 10,000 people to a, to a Dhamma talk in, in Myanmar. Uh, he can also very effectively raise funds for all of his projects. He just has to put word out that they are collecting funds and, and uh, people begin to contribute, usually very small amounts of money, but it, it accumulates when you have a lot of people. Um, 
I don't have a very close relationship with Cita Gussiero, but I've talked to him and seen him many, many times over the uh, intervening years. And um, I, I know people who are very close disciples of him, including the abbot here in Austin and the abbot in Minnesota at the Sidigu uh, Dhamma Vihara in Minnesota. Um, so I get, I, I, feel, I feel kind of when it comes to Sidigu Seattle, I, I, you know, I, I can get, uh, I, I can hear things almost from the horse's mouth when I ask uh, people about him. Hmm. So it's interesting because on your spiritual path, it sounds like you were definitely interested in being able to to renounce more fully, to follow greater vinaya, to be a Theravadan monk, and you were looking around stateside, and the fact that you ran into these monks who happened to be from Myanmar, they happened to be associated with Sitagu in the middle of this wild nature, living in this trailer, that was it was something in your interaction with them that brought you into this greater fold and and greater monastic experience but it sounds like it was really those four monks that were the initial draw into that path that specific path and tradition is that right yeah well one of the monks in particular who uh spoke excellent english which was very helpful and then um uh, he left the monastery here, and then uh, the monastery acquired a new abbot, Ashin Aryadama, who is uh, who I'm closest to here now. I'm also very close to the uh, the abbot of the uh, the monastery in Minnesota. Hmm. And what about these monks drew you to them so much that you had so much faith in who they were, how they were living, what they were practicing, that you were willing to take this very big step in your life? It must have been something about them that really gave you that confidence and faith. Well, I, I found it uh, among various monks, uh, and I wasn't particularly drawn to ordaining here uh, I would have, might have considered ordaining at a Bayagiri monastery, which is a largely uh, uh, it, 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 it's a Thai monastery, but uh, all of the monks there are Westerners, and um, but they had a limit on um, age limit for ordaining at thirty five, and so I I came back and uh, Ashin Aryadama. Uh, uh, offered to ordain me when I expressed an interest. Um, I found the, uh, I, I find the Burmese monks quite agreeable. They're just, you know, they're very likable. Uh, they're very easygoing. Uh, the life here is very harmonious. I never have any kinds of I, I've always found the Burmese monks very easy to get along with. They're very sincere in their practice. Uh, there's always been a cultural divide, but uh, I'm very open to that. It's fascinating to to live with people who are not really from a modern world in many ways. Um, they're uh, they're very devout. The lay people are are very devout. Uh, so I found this. I've always found this very compatible. I've always lived in complete harmony with all of the Burmese monks. 
Mm, right. And then you went to Myanmar, you ordained under Sitiku Sayada, and then you lived at Sitiku Academy in the Sagain Hills for a year. This was largely documented in the book through the looking glass. Well, for a few months. A few months. I, I spent ah, okay. time other other places. A couple months at Pau Ok Toya Meditation Center. And uh, and a couple of months in uh, uh, the Sitagu Center in in uh, uh, in Rangoon, as well. Mm, so tell us a little about those experiences of being a monk in Myanmar. Well, it was. I, I guess it was very very challenging. Um, I had had a lot of Zen practice, meditation practice. Was used to a rigorous meditation schedule and things like that, uh, in a lot of ways, um, the practice in Myanmar was easier because uh, uh, Burmese Buddhism is much less formal than than Japanese Buddhism. Um, The the conditions were sometimes primitive, but actually the Sidigu centers are are quite well endowed. the um, uh, w- one of the things I guess that stands out was that I was kind of a novelty in Myanmar. I was quite unique. I would go. I think at one time I went for two months. I never saw another Westerner. People would find me uh, uh, very exotic, and I realized as soon as I returned to the United States, I would be. Uh, seen as very exotic here too. Um, it was interesting the the amount of respect that monastics enjoy in Myanmar caught me by surprise. Having people bow at my feet, uh, and I never thought of myself as worthy of that, and I I got over it very very quickly by realizing that I'm not worthy of it. It's the sangha, the traditional sangha that they're bowing to. I imagined myself as a, I thought of a, a Buddha, a Buddha statue that gets a lot of bows. And the Buddha statue might be made of plaster. Uh, and yet it happens to be the shape of a Buddha. And so people treat it as a sacred object. And so that's how I began to think of myself. I'm, a, I'm just a piece of plaster. I'm playing a role. I'm wearing the the robes, and so people have to uh, have a need to treat you with an, an enormous amount of respect, as as a sacred being almost. Uh, so that got uh, uh, that 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 was interesting to get to get used to. Now I just kind of take it. Um, uh, the, the idea is to maintain your humility, I think. But I, I, I think for younger people, that is probably very challenging. It would have been for me if I was younger. Right. That reminds me. There was I read your book a number of years ago, but there was just one line in there that always stayed in my mind that I quite liked. And I'm paraphrasing, obviously, so I'm pr- probably get get it somewhat wrong. But it was a a line where you you had talked about your the first half of the book, as I remember, was your disenchantment with the world and journey towards renunciation. The second part was 
um, being a monk and talking about how that felt to wear the robes and the, as you described just now, a kind of growing acceptance and understanding for what that meant, who it was. We don't have these kinds of roles in Western society so much anymore. So this was something new you were learning. And you had a line of something like, I now knew what I was. I was a Buddhist monk, and this is who I was in the world. And this now told me everything I need to know about the decision I made and how I was to act. And it was just put so so simply in terms of your acceptance of of the role that you had. I think it might have even been in the context of trying to understand who you were for much of your life, and suddenly you had fallen into this, this role that that was very clear. This is who I am. This is what I represent. This is how I'm to live. And there was just a comfort in that clarity and renunciation of who you were to be and how people were to relate to you and what you were to do with your days now. I, I, I'm kind of a very shy uh, person, and uh, I just thought I would have a simple ordination. And um, Sita Gusieto had just initiated a, a new ordination hall, not, not a new pagoda uh, that was huge and quite beautiful. It's the main Sidigu pagoda now. And it was uh, had just been constructed, and I was the first person to ordain there. And there were 80 monks at my ordination. Normally, five are required. So it was a much bigger deal than I, than I thought it would be. So after my ordination, one of the monks I had met asked me, uh, what, uh, what feels different now that you're a monk? And my answer was, I know who I am. And then I began thinking about it. And I thought, you know, I already knew who I was. I think I knew who I was when I decided to ordain. But uh, what had changed? So I went back to that monk and I said, you know, I answered wrongly. I now have a community that knows who I am. And so the difference was that... Uh, Practicing Buddhism in a Western community, and especially in a Zen community, the idea of monastic ordination and renunciation is quite foreign. And, uh, and I suddenly realized I was in a culture that embraced that, that had a lot of respect for that ordination, and that understood what I was doing. And uh, that was the huge difference for me. Hmm. Yeah, I, I remember that. And that was why I was so moved by the line, because I was reading the book as I was also a Westerner integrating not so much in monastic life because I didn't become a monk, but I actually was living in monastic life in the sense that I was a, a lay meditator and more precepts at a monastery. And understanding what this division really meant between lay and monastic, which I think takes Westerners some time to wrap their minds around. And your understanding of that moment and transformation was something that always stayed in my mind, that you, at this moment, you you knew who you were and what path you had chosen. And, and there was a certain simplicity in that that I, I appreciated. Yeah, yeah. But mostly the community support and just belonging to a community, I think, was what really struck me. How so? So it was a Burmese Buddhist community. How did that Burmese Buddhist community influence your growth and development and commitment and everything else? It was just living in a community that understood what it was I was doing, 
what it was to ordain as a monk. Mm. Uh, there, it's quite widely understood. Uh, most men have been monks at some time or other. Uh, and uh, and all, it, just about everybody has a relative who's a, who's a monk. Um, and uh, and so it it's um, th that that social support I think was the the big difference for me. Hmm. So then, once you did ordain and you stayed at a number of monasteries, you were in Myanmar for a year as a Buddhist monk. What was that experience like? In Myanmar, yeah, it's. Um, uh, the uh, well, it, it was um, uh, quite exotic. Uh, sometimes very primitive living conditions, uh, very hot weather, and um, but uh, you know a very compatible and very supportive community all the time. I think I learned a lot in that first year that I spent in in Myanmar. And I'm glad I I spent the year there. Right. What would you say now, looking back on it, what were some of the big learnings you had in your life as a Buddhist monk and your spiritual development? I think, uh, you, you know, the interaction of the community and, uh, and the Sangha is, uh, is, is primary. Uh, I spent a lot of time meditating, a lot of time studying there, uh, a lot of time teaching English. People, uh, the, in fact, I, I really didn't have to learn Burmese while I was there, because I was kind of in an English-speaking bubble. Everywhere I went, I was surrounded by these young monks who were anxious to improve their English, mm -hmm. and so I, I had automatically automatic interpreters, um, and all of that. I I enjoyed teaching. I liked teaching. Uh, and um, so I taught a lot of uh, classes for, for the monks in uh, speaking English. Um, but most of the practice, I think, except for the community aspects, most of it is quite compatible or comparable to uh, Zen practice. Mm, how that, so? Uh, that I was used to. Well, it has the, the same components. Um uh, meditation, study, a uh, certain amount of ritual practice, chanting. So I just basically went along with the practice. Hmm, right. So as you were there, you did have some interaction with Siddhiku Sayada, not uh, a whole lot, as you mentioned, but you, you did interact with him somewhat, and you were able to learn something about both his background and his biography and his accomplishments, as well as the ongoing projects of what he was doing, what he was overseeing and administering while you were there. So can you give some background on what you learned about his, uh, his life up to that point? So what I learned in Myanmar is the extent of his organization. I actually had very, very little contact with him because he was always so busy and he travels a lot. He travels all over Asia, all over the world uh, on various projects uh, or on lecture tours. Um, and I've learned 
to know him more in America than than I did in Myanmar. Hmm. So when he when he comes uh, before COVID, he would generally come here to Austin about two times a year, stay here for a few days each time, have a lot of visitors, but have more time uh, to interact with the uh, with the monks that are here. Uh, I've seen him in. Um, let's see, I don't think I've seen him in Minnesota. I've been up there frequently. I've seen him in Calgary. Um, yeah, I've seen him mostly in Austin. Um, but I learned a, a lot about him. One, uh, there was a layperson here in Austin that was interesting, interested in writing a book, uh, a biography of Sirigu Sierra in English. There are several biographies in Burmese. And his idea was that he would translate these other biographies selectively into English, but he needed me to help to, to, uh, to make it into beautiful English. And so he and I worked on this project, and I, I learned a lot about Sidi Gussieto's life uh, through working on this uh, biography. Because Sita Gussieto has become so controversial in the last few years uh, because of Burmese politics, um, we realize that the book was not publishable, at least at this time in the West. So we're, we're still sitting hmm. on it. What were some of the things from the biography that stood out to you? And, 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 I, and stood out to you not just in being interesting, but in providing a richer, richer, fuller explanation of the man, of the monk, of what he'd accomplished? Yeah, he's, he's uh, what I think in the West we would call a Renaissance man. He, he has a lot of capabilities. Um, he was uh, largely a scholar monk in his, in his early years, but he took uh, several years off to live in the forest and meditate uh, in Mon State. Um, then, uh, then he studied with a, 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 a teacher in central Burma uh, in order to learn uh, to, uh, to give Dharma talks. Uh, who who was a, a, a great um, orator, and Sidi Gusieto wanted to be an orator, so he studied with this particular teacher. Uh, and um, when this particular teacher suffered a stroke, he basically, he, he had certain rounds, certain places that he would give Dharma talks uh, uh, Along, uh, following a yearly schedule. And so he actually appointed Sita Gussieto into his role because he couldn't give the Dharma talks. Hmm. And Sita Gussieto immediately made a, made a big splash. He became a very popular public speaker. Uh, and uh, as an early, early on as a monk, uh, in the middle of his studies, he took a trip with some other monks to Shan State near the Chinese border. And they happened upon this uh, um, hospital run by a, an American Baptist, American Baptist doctor hmm. from Tennessee. And Sita um, Gusieta was fascinated by it and got the tour of the hospital, talked to the 
uh, to the doctor who, who ran it and was very impressed by it because they ran, uh, they uh, offered medical care on a sliding scale. They never turned anybody away. Anybody who was a cleric from any religious tradition got free medical care. Mm. And uh, and Sidi Gusieto wondered, you know, why is it that there are no Buddhist hospitals? He, uh, you know, at least on that scale. He said, Buddhism teaches kindness, compassion, and yet, you know, wh wh where's the, uh, wh why can't they create a hospital to help out? people that are that are sick and he thought about it he could think of a lot of christian hospitals christians are of course very good at charity um he could think of muslim hospitals he could think of hindu hospitals but he couldn't think of a buddhist hospital that was anything like that and so he determined at that young age he said someday i'm going to found a hospital so he went on and he's now founded over 40 hospitals in in Myanmar and showed that Buddhists can do it. <laughs> um, he, um, he began, while, uh, while he's doing speaking tours, he realizes, realized he could raise money. And so he began these public service projects. The first one was not a hospital. It was to provide running water for Sagaing Hills by uh, raising money to install uh, pumps along the water line, along the Irrawaddy River, pump them up to tanks at the top of the hills, and uh, which were placed in monasteries, and then uh, provide free running water for all of the monasteries in Sagaing Hills. So we undertook that project. Shortly after that, he uh, founded a hospital and then came 1988, the uh, the student uprising. It wasn't really an uprising. It was just people demonstrating, really. But um, uh, when, uh, when the military responded to the uprising so brutally, Sidi uh, Gusieto, uh, the, the uprisings were, were largely in... Um, uh, Rangoon, but also in Mandalay, which is near where Sidi Gusiero was living. Sidi uh, Gusiero, immediately after August 8th, 1988, which is when everything came to a head in Myanmar, Sidi uh, Gusiero, right after that, delivered a, uh, a sermon on the responsibilities of kings. And it was just highly critical of the military government and uh, criticized them for not meeting their responsibility to the, the people. Uh, he was doing this about the same time Aung San Suu Kyi was being recruited in Rangoon to, uh, to give her famous uh, uh, talk that launched her political uh, engagement in the situation. Uh, but Sidi Gusieto continued his um, lecture tour, and he gave this talk 40 times throughout Myanmar. Oh. The BBC picked it up and broadcast it on their Burmese language program. And so almost everybody in Myanmar heard this, this talk. And, of course, everybody hates 
almost everybody hates the military. And uh, and so it, it actually increased his popularity quite a bit. Mm. Right after the this uprising, uh, the military was trying to improve its public image. It was trying to work with the opposition and try to come to terms with them. And, and of course, it agreed that there would be elections, democratic elections in 1990. Uh, as a result, Cita uh, Gusieto at first didn't feel any rep. rep repercussions from giving this talk. Uh, the military stopped arresting people for a time. But after the military failed to recognize the results of the elections, Sidigu Sieto got word through his vast network of connections that, um, that they were going to arrest him for giving that talk. They mm. were uh, suppressing all of the opposition at that time. Uh, to the uh, uh, against their not recognizing the results of the elections. So, Sita uh, Gusieto uh, quietly left the country and went into exile, came to the United States and lived in Tennessee for two years. Hmm. Uh, at that time, he got the idea of um, starting a monastery. Uh, a Burmese monastery in America, and that's actually the origin of our monastery here in Austin, Texas. Mm. He worked with the local community here to buy, eventually buy some property. But, um, okay, here's the interesting thing about Sita Gusieto. As, as, as really a fundamental leader of the opposition, he had gone into exile and people didn't know where he went. He just disappeared. So the military, the people thought, you know, maybe the military killed him or imprisoned him and just never told anybody where he was. And uh, the military government actually invited him to come back. The, uh, but under uh, certain conditions. They invited them to come back because they were again worried about their public image. And Sita Gusieto had become a prominent monk, and uh, they uh, and, and they were being accused of getting rid of him. So uh, what he agreed to was that he would come back to Myanmar. He would be allowed to continue all of his social service programs, but he was not allowed to engage in politics or any kind of opposition. He had to leave the military government alone and they would leave him alone. So this is the condition he's been working under ever since. Um, the military has actually, one of the impressive things is the military has kept up their side of the bargain. They give him complete freedom. If you travel to Myanmar as a Sidigu monk or uh, under Sidigu auspices, you never have to go through um, you never have to go through customs. Hmm. 
if you're riding, and on a couple occasions, I was riding in a in a car that's marked Sidigu, with one of the other monks. We borrowed one from the monastery. Uh, at that time, there were military checkpoints all over the country. Uh, you'd be right, driving, taking a bus, or driving your car down the street, and there would be uh, uh, soldiers there. They would check all of your documents. Usually, have people get out of the car uh, or out of the bus, except monks. They'd never make them get out. Mm. But as soon as they would see the car marked with Sidigu on the top of the windshield, they would notice that and then just wave, uh, wave the car through. So they had a unusual relationship. Now I know from discussion with Sidigu, um, he he developed close relations with the military in order to cooperate with them and get their cooperation. And they usually would do things for him. For instance, in, um, uh, in 2020, uh, when co the COVID problem started, Sidigu wanted to get 500 monks, Burmese monks who were living in India, to get them back into Burma and then quarantine and, and then let them join the Burmese monastic population. Uh, and they could not take commercial flights. So uh, what Sidigu Sieto did was he, he phoned up uh, a person in, in the Aung San Suu Kyi government, the civilian government, and said that, you know, he needed two planes to, to do this, to pick up this many monks could they arrange it? Uh, it took a long time. They were hoeing and hawing and had to get it approved at various levels. And Sidigu Sieto lost patience with them. And so he phoned up, um, uh, uh, he, he, he phoned up uh, uh, General uh, Min Ong Lang, who's now the dictator of Myanmar, and he said, you know, I need to get these monks back to Burma. Can you help me? And, and the general said immediately, you know, I'll give you three planes tomorrow. So he always had this kind of cooperation. He mm. never had very much respect for the, for the generals or what they stood for or for their brutality. And I know that from hearing that from him and discussions with, uh, with him. But he did work out a relationship where he could cooperate with them. Hmm, that's quite interesting. And I want to just clarify and expand on the last thing you said, because I think that will be of enormous interest for people listening to this, that it was your understanding that he was very unhappy, that Sitiku Seida was very unhappy with the military leaders and the generals. And you believe he felt this way by things he said to you. Can you be a bit more specific in how you remember him describing his feelings uh, towards the military and, and expressing his displeasure? You know, I can't remember what words he said, and he, he uh, did not go into, into detail, but it was like uh, him dismissing them and shaking his head uh, but I can't remember exactly what he what he said. Uh, he did have think highly of certain people in the military, and and he he had a very high opinion of um, 
uh, U Thang Sein, who became the first president of, of Myanmar. U Thang Sein was a general who took off uh, his uniform in order to run, uh, in order to be president in the new uh, civilian government. And um, he was kind of known as the uncorruptible general. He, he had a lot more compassion than other generals. And that's probably why he was chosen by the uh, the the rest of the generals put put forward for that that position because he would be more acceptable to civilians than uh, than the other generals. So I I know that Sidiguciero uh, had had a fairly good relationship also when he became president. But um, uh, but but I I know that that he has has doesn't think highly of the generals. I know mostly from his disciples, who who I know, we have several monks here, or disciples of his, that um, they are all very anti-military, every one of them. Mm. Right. And before we move on and look in a bit more detail about the current year, I want to back up just a little bit to comment on some of the things you said and add some of my own understandings of the time that I've spent in Myanmar and the research that I've done uh, of just painting a picture of this multifaceted person. And, you know, let's face it, people are not simple, especially someone, some of the great figures that that rise to take on great responsibilities in history, they have many sides of them. And as much as some people might be disappointed by, and justifiably so, by the current actions, I do want to honestly and reasonably look at what came before that, and at least the limited knowledge I've had in my experience. I want to comment on your description of providing water through the Sagain Hills and just uh, emphasize what a remarkable achievement this was. The Sagain Hills are this incredible place, and as you said, in central Myanmar, where it's been a, a real bedrock of practice of, uh, for centuries, monks who have come to this place to want to practice very serious meditation deep in the forest and uh, away from wherever the capital was at the time and orthodoxy. And there's this stories going back uh, hundreds, sometimes thousands of years of the different monks and the different periods who would come and how they would practice and these tales that would come out of their stories of how ardently they were practicing and what they were achieving. And I spent a lot of time in the Sagain Hills as well, and so I, I, I would learn about some of these places and histories and monks as I went around. And one of the things I learned while there was that the uh, – the, the Sagain Hills were a nice place to practice because it was close enough to the Irrawaddy River that they would be able to access their water, but it was far enough away they could feel isolated. But the deeper into the Sagain Hills they went, the further away they were from those water sources. And so because of that, in some of these old monasteries, they would build these enormous water tanks that would collect the rains. And then depending on how heavy the rains were and how bad the hot season was, they would hope that 
the rains they collected during the rainy season would last them through the hot season until the next rains. And this was how the monks survived. There might have been ways to carry water to them or the monks might have had to move, but so much of their life and their practice and their culture and, and what they decided to do was based on the simple fact of how do we get water? Because the Sagain Hills are this, this rolling patchwork of different hills and crags and cliffs and, and various places. There's not really a lot of big monasteries up there. They're, they're pretty small places where only a handful of monks will stay in a certain certain site. And there are wild anima, animals too. We can go into the stories of the tiger attacks and, and so much else and the, the ghosts and, and, and everything. But leaving that to the side, uh, water was such an important element for how they can live and practice here. And so when Sittagu Sayada brought water through the pipelines into these all these various monasteries and nunneries across this network, he changed this history overnight. Overnight, he changed it from a place where one's ability to live and practice was based on this fundamental human need of water that was now streaming through them freely. And as you would walk around the Sagain Hills, you'd look at all the different water systems of all the tiny monasteries and nunneries and caves and other places, and where the Sidigu waterways had connected them that had now changed the course of their history of where and how they were able to live. Uh, so this, knowing that background, you see the significance of just what it was to provide that water. Uh, moving on to a couple of other things that I know, initiatives that he, he undertook, just to mention them very briefly because they could take up a whole episode in and of themselves. One of them, uh, advocating for women, advocating for female meditators and supporters and nuns. Uh, the whole buildup of Sagai nunneries uh, all around the Sagai Hills, all, all countless nunneries and the 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 inclination for women to want to come to Sagai to ordain as nuns, Siddhagu Sayada, as I've understood, has been such a big advocate of the path for the female renunciate. And the other thing to mention is that I've heard is English language learning, that when he came around, the fact of Burmese Buddhist monks learning English was seen as taking on a kind of language of your, your colonizer, of your enemy, of your, your, uh, your non-believer. And because Sitagu was so forward-thinking and, and aware of the greater world, he did not see the English language as a barrier or an opponent for the practice of Buddhism, but as a stepping stone, as an ally. And so he insisted and supported English language programs for monks, which are now very commonplace. And we don't, in 2021, we don't really think of Burmese Buddhist monks learning English as something that is going against their training or their objective or or their their path. But from what I've understood at that time, and I don't know when that would be, the 70s, 80s, something like that, that was not as far removed as the independence era is now, that English language was seen by some as kind of the enemy. And Sitagu took charge and had the initiative to really reverse that understanding and to show that English could be used in service of Buddhism, in service of monasticism, rather than against it. So I think there was a period before before this uh, all, all happened. Uh, I think there was a five-year period when the military government actually outlawed teaching English in schools, mm. just despite the British. Mm. <laughs> they also at that time changed the uh, the side of the street that people drive on. So right. people drive 
on the right side of the street now, like we do here in America, rather than the left side of the street. Um, so, uh, uh, so anyway, yeah, there, there was, uh, yeah, so that, that, that was uh, a little forward thinking, you're right. Yeah, so we're painting a picture of this complicated, nuanced person that has lived eight decades on this earth and has accomplished a tremendous amount and is not all one thing or the other. And I think this is a really important context and background to however briefly we've painted to be able to give some kind of portrayal as we get up to February 1st and trying to understand where we are now. And that's where I'd like to move the conversation. And I don't want to mince words about how delicate this subject is and where we're going. And before we get into more detail about that, I, I'd like to give some background from my side first. So please allow me just a moment to discuss a little bit about laying the groundwork for this conversation. Uh, on one hand, at least prior to the coup, there was a kind of reticence on the part of lay people to speak critically of monks. I think this was partly out of the custom of having so much reverence towards monks in society. This itself comes from this belief that there's this higher spiritual status and powers of monks. So before February, very few Burmese Buddhists would ever deign to express, some not even think, skepticism about Siddhagu Sayada. This has clearly changed now. So let me say here that very few listeners, when I announced this interview, I wanted to survey and, and collect questions that people might want to ask. Very few listeners were very pleased that this conversation was going to take place, honestly speaking. Several volunteered that this would be the one interview on my platform that they would not listen to. I hope their mind can be changed when it comes out. As I elicited and asked some questions, uh, two listeners, some of them didn't respond with questions, but they responded with statements. And I, I just want to read some of their words just so we have an understanding of the current climate uh, and how tense it is and what we're trying to navigate as we have this conversation. Uh, one person wrote, nowadays, Venerable Sitiku Sayada cannot show his face anywhere in the world outside the protection offered by the murdering military coup maker and his henchmen. Very soon this will also perish. He has blackened the face of Burmese Buddhism. Another comment. I was born a Mun Buddhist in Burma. I'm very disappointed by Sitiku Sayada's support of the generals. I'm disappointed in the Bamar version of Buddhism due to monks like him. And I'll read a final comment. My opinion of Sitiku Sayada is that he is an unfortunate symbol of what has been wrong with the Mahasanga members in various countries. They seem detached from ethics and clear seeing, divorced from Dhamma, and the example of the great bhikkhus like Ajahn Chah. They hold high positions and, like politicians, seek to have power, control, and access to very powerful politicians and riches. At a time when the people of Myanmar need to be inspired by courageous ethical monks, like Sitigu, monks like Sitigu Sayada, leave people saddened and disappointed, knowing that these monastics are aligned with the same men who shoot them in the streets. Others were more vocal that expressed their opinion. They warned me that I was going to allow a military sympathizer to gain access to the platform and try to paint an alternative view. Uh, some even alerted me that it would be a serious danger. The conversation could ultimately provide some kind of cover to Sitagu for his supposed support of the military, and it would encourage more monks to do the same. 
of course, given the integrity that I've sensed in you from your writing, the conversations we've had before the interview, I, I have full trust this is not the case. And I was also intrigued by your feeling that while you're quite upfront in feeling disappointed by certain actions, you do feel that Sitiku Seyed is being misunderstood. And since sharing this with me, I've been self-reflective about some of my own statements and posts online, and I realize I might have jumped the gun too early in some of my own condemnation of, of things I heard without knowing the full context, just out of the horror and the frustration of what was going on and hearing some bit of the story where he was involved and feeling quite disappointed at some of those comments have, have indicated. And, and so as you openly share your thoughts and findings, I want to be able to hear them honestly and allow my own understanding to be changed if that happens in some areas. And I, I hope that listeners can do that as well. But that being said, the conversation will have to be quite frank in highlighting some of these recent controversial points and examining what is there to be found. And so this really is a, a delicate path for both of us to be able to discuss. And I appreciate your courage in being able to come on and discuss it. And I wanted to foreground this for the listener in, in alerting that we are certainly aware of the sensitivities in what follows and we will do our best to manage it. So with that, we can move on to talking a little bit about what we've seen this year and in, in the previous years. And I would also like to check in with you. What are your thoughts on hearing all this of what I've, what I've just laid out? I'm aware of the controversy about Cidi Gucciato, and you and I have talked about this in the uh, in the past. Uh, I think that there is a lot of misunderstanding, but there is a lot of that Cidi Gucciato has um, has done very unskillfully. Um, let me make clear: I'm not a supporter of the military, whatever. I'm not even a supporter of the American military. I'm uh, I'm. I've been very much a, a pacifist since the Vietnam War. I've never um, and uh, and I see the 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 great harm that the Burmese military has has done. They're quite brutal. They brutalize their their own people in in you know just egregious ways. Uh, and then they, the generals have been enriching themselves. They they own a very large part of the uh, the Burmese economy while they're driving the Burmese economy into the ground. Uh, there's nothing positive I can say about the generals, uh, except that um, you know that some of them may be a little bit better than than others. It's all, always the case. Uh, the generals purport to be Buddhists, but they're not very good Buddhists. Maybe their wives are. Uh, I think they use Buddhism in order to improve their their public image. They they love getting photo ops. They love uh, being shown making donations to to monasteries. Uh, I think they've manipulated the sangha very uh, very skillfully. Uh, so I, I have nothing positive to say about the military. I'm not a defender of the military, and I'm not mm. a defender of anybody who is a defender of the military. 
Um, but let me clarify. Um, I let me uh, introduce uh, Osada mm -hmm. first. Say a few words about him. He sure. uh, he is a monk I'm very close to. Lives in Minnesota. Uh, he is a very very close disciple of Sita Guciato and has been for many years one of his most senior disciples. He usually talks on the phone with Sita Guciato about once every week or or two. Uh, and um, sometimes you can judge a teacher by their students. Uh, what you find is, uh, what I find in Uosada is he, he agrees with me on just about everything about Burmese politics that's wrong with Burmese politics. He himself was a protester in this period around um, eight, uh, 1988 and spent six months in prison uh, for just for protesting. Uh, he um, is he's totally appalled with almost everything the military does. He was appalled with the Rohingya genocide. Uh, he is appalled with their behavior now and with the with the coup. Um, and uh, and he is also a very strong supporter of the Muslim population in in Myanmar. Um, he, when, um, uh, let's see, I think in 2013, maybe there, there was a, uh, there was some, uh, violence in, in a town called, uh, Metila in central Burma that followed upon some of the early violence in the Rohingya area that surprised everybody. Uh, there was mob violence on both sides, but of course, um, uh, 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 these were Burmese-speaking Muslims that lived in the town and Burmese-speaking Buddhists. And there was this, uh, suddenly these these riots happening. Um, Osada was in Myanmar at the time, uh, but he had was involved in the running of a hospital in a monastery in this very town of, of Metila. So in the middle of the riots, he traveled down there because some of the employees of the hospital were Muslim and he wanted to make sure that they were safe. He, um, uh, he was staying at the monastery uh, that he was already associated with. And um, while he was in the, in the building, there were, uh, uh, a Buddhist mob was chasing uh, some Muslims down the street, about 40 to 50 of them. Uh, he opened the door to the monastery and told the Muslims, come in here where it's safe. And the mob wanted to break into the monastery. And um, Uosada told the mob, he says, you kill me first before you touch any of them. He kept them in the monastery for several days until it was safe to, to go out and arrange that um, Buddhist families would bring food to them. Um, and so these are kind of stories you, you don't hear of, but this is one of uh, Sita Gusieto's close disciples. Uosada is very critical of Sita Gusieto in certain ways, and he's very open with me about this. 
uh, and I agree with his uh, with his criticisms. Uh, but I don't agree that the city Gutierrez is a supporter of the military. He has this arrangement with the military. He takes advantage of it. I think city Gutierrez is very naive, and Oseda tells city Gutierrez this. But um, just as you have the monks kind of standing as authorities to the lay people, such that the lay people don't like to contradict the monks, within the Sangha, the Burmese Sangha, you, you do not contradict a, a more senior monk, one who has more, uh, has been a monk longer. And uh, Sidi Gusciato can be very stubborn about things. So um, Sidi Gusciato became very controversial in 2017, and we can talk about that, uh, with relation to the Rohingya situation. And now he's become controversial again with relation to the uh, to the coup. Uh, basically, uh, because of Sidi Gusciato's arrangement with the military, it would be hard for him to speak out. My own feeling would be that it would be good for Sidi Gusciato to leave the country and then speak out. If he speaks out in Myanmar, he would probably be arrested immediately. If he speaks out at all, probably all of his um, public service operations would be shut down by the military or taken over by the military and uh, and not run competently. Um, so so basically, what what's happened since the coup is, you know, and this is very bad judgment on Sidi Gusciato's part, is that um, in February, uh, right after the coup, uh, General Ming uh, Ong Ling uh, came to visit him uh, at his monastery. This was actually a, uh, a meeting that had been arranged before the coup. Uh, and U Osada and many of his senior disciples were telling him, cancel this, don't meet with him. It's going to look very bad. But Sita Seattle met with him anyway. By the way, uh, U Osada uh, knows uh, General Minon Fling uh, as, uh, as well. Uh, doesn't respect him, but, um, but uh, knows him and especially his, his wife. Um, Sidi Gusciato tends to be very uninformed. And I think in a position that he's in, uh, that, that's, that's not excusable. He, he should have access to information. I think um, the Burmese in general really aren't very critical of uh, news media or where they're getting stories. They kind of have the idea that if it's on Facebook, it must be true. But um, in one of the talks that Sidigu Seattle delivered early on, uh, he, he referred to election fraud. This was a huge mistake. This is the general, this is the military line that they had to stage a coup because the election that had happened the previous November was fraudulent. Um, Sidigu Seattle has been involved in the building of a giant Buddhist statue in uh, Naypyidaw, the capital of, of Myanmar. 
and he made a public appearance on March 26th to uh, do a blessing ceremony for the statue. And of course, it gave the generals a lot of photo ops. Um, he has been building a pagoda in Moscow, Russia. There's a Burmese population in Moscow, and the population is military. It uh, um, uh, consists of soldiers and their families, uh, where the soldiers are involved in a mutual cooperation program with the, uh, with the Russian military. Uh, most of the soldiers are Buddhists, so there was some demand for a, uh, uh, a monastery. Uh, to be found in Moscow, and Sidiguciero was um, largely responsible for that. Uh, he, uh, the pagoda is still under construction, and there was a, a, a time when he needed to go to Moscow in order to do a blessing. Now, here's where he made his probably his, his biggest blunder. Uh, he couldn't get a commercial flight to Moscow because of COVID, all the airlines, commercial airlines were shut down. So what does he do? He goes and gets on an airplane with the general uh, who was uh, second in, in command uh, in, in, uh, in Myanmar. Um, the um, uh, general So, so Win. He got on the plane with General, uh, with, uh, general So Win to Moscow. Well, General So Win is um, he was going there to make arms purchases from the Russians, which are arms that are going to be used to shoot at demonstrators in uh, in Myanmar. And Sirigusiero, uh, during this period, Uosada was telling him, don't get on that plane, don't be, meet with them. But Sirigusiero uh, was just single-mindedly uh, pursuing this, you know, that he just wanted to work on his, his pagoda and just saw that opportunity. Apparently, um, Uosada is finally convinced Sidigusiero, I understand, to see if this sticks, that he is really harming the, the opposition by appearing with the generals so much. So Sidi Uciero, last I know, was stuck in, still stuck in Moscow because he decided he would not take a military plane back. And, um, and so he had, he had been uh, uh, looking for a commercial flight. Last I heard, he find that, found a commercial flight through Sri Lanka. So hopefully Sidi Uciero will be a little um, more sensitive to the needs of the Burmese people as they're fighting a you know very brutal battle with the uh, with the military and so much suffering is is going on now in in uh, in Myanmar. Mm, that's there's a lot there. <laughs> there's you covered um, some incredible points. I just want to go back to the very first thing you said when you started that all off. I think it's incredibly important to get the background and your commentary and understanding of this. You taught, you referenced the now infamous 2017 speech in Corinth State at 
uh, being now in garrison to soldiers, including officers that were in attendance who had carried out some of the uh, terror in, in, in Rakhine against the Rohingya. And this talk was extremely controversial and has been, especially these days, has been referenced and referred to many times. You learned about this talk and you investigated it yourself and tried to understand it. So can you walk listeners through exactly what was said during this talk and then what your understanding of the background and the context of this discourse was? Yeah, so... um he gave, he gave a talk. Uh, it was actually to a military training school. It was in Cayenne State. It was at a very inauspicious time because the uh, genocide against the Rohingya was going on as he spoke. But, um, but very often, monks do give talks to, uh, to military groups. And... Um, so he gave this talk, and a very common theme of talks that uh, is often given to military, kind of for reasons that I don't fully understand, is, um, is to cite the Mahawangsa. The Mahawangsa is kind of a chronicle of Sri Lankan history. It's not really a Buddhist text, but it was composed in Pali, the Buddhist scriptural language during the approximate time that the the uh, commentaries were, were being composed in Sri Lanka. And so it has kind of semi-scriptural status. It's not really Buddhist scripture, but it's highly regarded. Um, the chapter 25 of this text describes, it's called the victory of uh, Dutagamani. Dutagamani was the uh, Sri Lankan Buddhist king who defeated the Tamils in a big battle. And the story that the Mahawangsa uh, cites to, talks about the battle and the aftermath of the battle. But there's a short passage in there that is very, very controversial. And this is uh, the passage where uh, the king feels remorse because all of the Tamils that he's had to kill to win this battle and is convinced that he will be reborn in hell. There are eight arahants that uh, appear and tell him that uh, he will not go to hell because he was not fighting the war for his own uh, for personal reasons, for his own wealth or glory, he was fighting it to preserve the uh, the Buddhist tradition in in Sri Lanka. Uh, so it's kind of justification for uh, uh, for a holy war, which you'll never find in any of the Buddha's talks. Um, it then says that it's it's often I think mistranslated. What it says is that uh, the arahants assure him that the people he killed were almost all evil people. This is what you always want to believe when you go to war that the enemy is evil. That's why you demonize the enemy when we go to war. But um, 
but he said, uh, describes it as they do not follow the precepts and they have wrong view. People sometimes translate it as saying they're non-Buddhists. It's, it's not, uh, Paul Fuller comments on this and points out that there's really no way to say non-Buddhist in, in Pali. It doesn't really say that. It says they're, they're of wrong view and they don't follow the, the Buddhist precepts. Uh, I think it was understood, but there are also precepts that uh, any, any religious tradition follows, uh, but that these were uh, evil people. This passage is very controversial. Now, um, this was picked up uh, apparently by Matthew Walton, who's a, a very respected authority on on um, uh, on Yanma and on, on on Buddhism. He's a he's a scholar. I find that if you want to know about what's going on in Yanma, if you go to what uh, Matthew Walton says, it it usually turns out to be true. Uh, he picked up on this uh, story. He read a transcript, or maybe maybe heard the uh, a recording of the uh, the talk, and was absolutely appalled that the Sita Gusiero would be would quote this Mahawangsa and talk about uh, holy war and and an evil enemy right in the middle of the Rohingya situation. So this is kind of the context. It became immediately controversial. Um, and um, when I heard about it, I was able to locate a transcript of the talk, and I was appalled myself. I considered leaving the, the Sidhu Monastery. I was very confused, though, because I had never known Sidhu Sierra ever to advocate violence. And I certainly did not see that in any of the monks. Um, our abbot here became aware of the controversy around this and was very upset that people were accusing Sidigu Sierra of, um, uh, of promoting violence. And um, uh, is you know something I never heard from any of the monks here that would sound anything like this. So I was very, very confused about this. It was only a few months later when I talked to U Osada uh, that I uh, found out what was what was behind this. Sita Gusiero was delivering a standard sermon that is that is often many monks deliver this sermon. There's kind of a demand for uh, among the military Buddhists uh, to hear this uh, particular story, chapter 25 of the Bahawangsa. And so many monks will, uh, will talk about that. However, that, that a certain passage in there that I described is very, very controversial. Uh, the generals would like their soldiers to believe that the monks have basically refused, traditionally refused to endorse those um, those particular particular uh, passage. It's not a long passage, but it's in there in the text. So Burmese monks, when they deliver a sermon, usually they have a Buddhist text 
they have it in memory. They cite it line by line and go through it. So we always go through these uh, texts. Now, this text has been used for a long time as a, uh, a, a video of this text has been used for uh, training soldiers for a long time. And uh, what, what was recorded in the video, it was recorded in, um, uh, ooh, Osa, they gave me the details. It was, it was recorded in, in uh, 1989, so shortly after the 1988 uh, uprising. And it was an interview between a major in the army and uh, a very eminent monk who was also a mentor of Sidi Gussieros, uh in his early days, uh, named uh, Ashin Ga uh, uh, Gambiero Bodhi. And uh, the, the monk basically asks Gambiero Bodhi questions about this text and keeps, um, keeps inquiring about this and spends a lot of time about these this uh, controversial passage. And uh, Gambira Bodhi says, so this is the Arahant speaking uh, to the king and kind of excusing him for conducting a just war against evil people. Uh, and so whenever the uh, major asks uh, uh, Gambira, uh, about this passage, Gambira would reply, he would say, the Arahants say that, I don't say that. So he would refuse to endorse what the Arahants were supposed to have said. I think the reasoning why he didn't say that the Arahants were wrong was because this is kind of a semi-sacred text and it's hard to talk about them. But he, he says, you know, the, the Arahants said this, I do not endorse this. And so this is the way this text is traditionally uh, presented by, by monks in Myanmar. It's been presented hundreds and hundreds of times. What Sidi Gusiero did was not, was not unique. And in fact, U Osada has delivered this text. U Osada, when he gets to that passage, he's always careful to explain Keep in mind that this is not a Buddhist text. This happens to be in the Pali language, but it's not a Buddhist text. It's not the words of the Buddha. It's not a commentary on the words of the Buddha. It's simply telling the history. Um, and Siddhi uh, Gusiero doesn't go into that detail, but when you um, read the transcript of Siddhi Gusiero's talk, he, he says, he says exactly, he says, you know, the Arahants say, say this, but I do not say this. The Arahants say this, but I do not say this. And actually, um, Matthew Walton, when he reported this, what he, he had seen, uh, he, uh, he pointed out that Sita Gustiello seems to be covering his, um, his trail here because he keeps saying these things and then denying them. Well, he's actually delivering it in, in the uh, accepted way. So this was not a um, uh, attack that was meant to uh, promote uh, violence. And in fact, Osada asked him about this, you know, why, why would you give this talk 
when the uh, when this thing was going on, the whole, whole matter of uh, the uh, genocide against the Rohingya. And Sidi Guciano said he, you know, he's delivered this talk so many times he wasn't even thinking about the, the Rohingya. He was on the other side of, of Myanmar. So that's my understanding of what happened with this. Hmm. I thank you for that clarification. I think one question based on that would be so you have this situation where he has said something that other people don't have access to the context that you've just laid out. Uh, it's a really bad look. It's very controversial. It starts to spread internally and, and internationally as well and get commented on and criticized. And I think one really obvious question based on that, which would also, which would presage the kinds of questions that we're getting now, is why didn't Sitiku Sayada just make a brief statement that you shouldn't kill? Killing is never justified within the... Buddhist understanding of ethics. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you're killing. It doesn't matter what their background is. But you should not be killing. This can never be justified. You can never escape the karma from doing this. If he, if, if at any moment he had just clarified it concretely and absolutely like that, I think that this would have made many people aware, aware of where he stood and what he believed in and what he, what he wouldn't tolerate. And yet, I'm not aware of any response like that or any hard statement of uh, stating something uh, ethically very, very strongly and very powerfully. Why do you think he wasn't able to make a statement like that after this controversy developed and people were attributing other ideas to what the speech could mean? That's a good question. Um, I'm not aware, you know, of course, I, I don't know if he what statements he has made, I should ask U Osada uh, to clarify. One thing is when he gave this talk, of course, it was for a, a limited audience. The trouble is wherever Sidi Gusieto goes, there's all these cameras rolling. So um, so these things do, um, do get out to a larger audience. Um, it was a basically a scripted talk. Uh, and so uh, the, the, uh, probably all of the soldiers had heard this talk before uh, given. So uh, at that point, he could have said, you know, killing is wrong. The trouble is, you know, if you, I, I always try to set myself in that situation. If I'm speaking to a group of American soldiers uh, and there's a war going on in Iraq, would I say to them, killing is wrong. Uh, it would be a very odd thing and kind of awkward thing to say, although that's what I would think. That's what I, I would want to say. Um, so I don't know the, uh, the, the, the full context of, of that. Uh, he may be reticent because he's, you know, if, has this deal with the generals. He leaves them alone. Um, but it seems to me he could, he, you know, he, he, he could make more statements than he does. And I criticize him for that. Yeah, and I guess I, I'm not thinking so much of what he would say to the soldiers in that moment, because I, I agree with you that would there would be a very delicate way to speak like that about someone's profession, whatever it was. And 
what they were employed to do. If you're talking to someone who ran a butcher shop or caught fish or whatever, my question was more to the people to clarify once he realized that these words were potentially and maybe actually being used to justify uh, – uh, the the kill, killing without karma of people who were not Buddhist and, and were Rohingya, that with his platform at any time, in any moment, in any way, he could have chosen to say, no, this is not what I meant. I, I would not justify this. This should not be happening. But his silence really did indicate that he probably was complicit in this, that he this probably was an underlying meaning. And I think that this is what critics thought, and I think this is also what supporters thought, that this was the role this silence was playing. So not so much in that speech to that crowd, but once the controversy spread, and once he saw that his words could actually cause loss of life, that there would be ample opportunity at a later point in another context to say, to, to clarify and set the record, killing is wrong. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I would I would certainly agree with that. It's a little hard to to guess. Um, you know, I, I'm not aware of. Uh, there may be public statements that he he has made along those those lines um, that have just not been been reported. Uh, but um, uh, you know, I I don't think he's shown a lot of courage as far as uh, you know, even making mild statements or or, or fitting things in into his uh, talks. There may be things going on that I, I assume there are things that are going on that I don't understand, uh, including uh, threats by the military. He certainly has conversations with the generals uh, and. People may be telling him, you know, don't say any of this or that violates our agreement. We'll shut you down. There may be threats going on that Uosada would also not know about. I've talked to Uosada about that. You know, if he thinks that there's things going on behind the scenes, he kind of thinks there certainly are, but he doesn't know what they are. So um, um, I think... Um, I, you know, I, I don't think what, what you find in Buddhist text is r really, uh, you know, early Buddhist texts and the suttas, you'd never find any justification for killing, even in self-defense. There's just no, it's just not there. Uh, violence is, is just strictly prohibited. Of course, people will defend themselves in in self-defense, but they have to go out of the Dhamma to, to do that. In the case of monks, for instance, uh, we have, if, if a monk kills another person uh, or uh, even causes somebody else to kill another person, uh, it's a disrobing offense. It's one of the four parajika uh, disrobing offense. They've disrobed on the spot as soon as person uh, dies who, who the who the monk is uh, who, whose death the monk is responsible for you know if somebody attacks a monk and a monk hits him back and kills him a monk has still committed that uh, parajika uh, so the the 
early Buddhist texts are very, very careful about, uh, you know, re restricting uh, violence. Um, there's just no room for it. Um, and so people, uh, people understand this. The monks understand the Parajika rule uh, that, um, that they can, if they incite somebody to violence, they can be uh, subject to, to disrobing. Mm, I think in these stories you're telling, I really appreciate the context and the background that you're giving. Uh, I'm, as I laid out in some of the statements from the listeners who express skepticism with even this interview taking place, I want to speak to the skepticism they might have in listening to this and play a bit of devil's advocate. I can hear voices that are listening to this and that are responding and thinking, oh, come on, this great, this this most powerful monk with this uh, important role and background can't at one point, at one time, after the speech or during the coup, say three words, killing is wrong. This trip to Moscow that was, uh, that was so publicized, that was with the number two general buying arms, the pictures were taken, come on, how could he not know what he was doing? How, how could he step into something like that? The experience of the coup happening and of so many devout Burmese Buddhists that are having to make this terrible choice between laying down their precepts that they live by or, uh, or, or adopting some kind of armed resistance because they don't want a life of terror and subjugation, subjugation ahead that Sidigu can't speak up and, and say something and speak to this and use his powerful influence and connection to these generals and speak a word here or there to, uh, to show the support of the people and is instead of doing that is seen going to a consecration and uh, blessing ceremony of this great Buddha image in, in Nepida. And so I think I, I uh, on one hand, I want to say I really appre I do appreciate this context and background you're giving. I'm learning tremendously about this. I'm reflecting on this. And I also want to acknowledge that we've gotten to a point where among the Burmese Buddhist population, the degree of skepticism, of distrust, of frustration, of hopelessness, that there, there is simply not a generosity of spirit in wanting to believe or give the benefit of the doubt to any of these and, and really feeling that they have been left behind and discarded by someone powerful that could do something for them and could speak for them and does not. And it's just kind of one excuse after the other after the other, which is, well, because of this reason or because of that reason and is, at worst, is just someone who's not really correctly reading the situation. So I guess I want to present this to you because I think this will be a response of many listeners that are having in real time. So to that response, how would you counter? What would you say? So, uh, you know, uh, I, I understand, um, understand, uh, you know, every, everything you're saying, I'm quite frustrated by it myself. One thing that's important is to keep a clear head. There's so much division and people want to create, you know, black and, and white. They've, uh, 
see, you know, who who are the, who are the friends and who are the enemy. We see so much division in in American politics where there's no middle ground. There's no there's no points. People don't look at complexities. Either you're with us, you're you're against us. People are 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 demonized. Um, and I think, uh, given the the uh, situation in Myanmar, people are going to think that way. Uh, people who, who empathize with the Burmese people uh, tend to think that way. They will, uh, you, you know, they, they don't look for uh, subtleties. Why is somebody doing it like this? Um, so I said uh, Sidigusiano's position is, is very complicated. He's been navigating. This is a balancing act. He's been uh, that he's been involved in now for forty years with the the generals, not to get out of favor with them, uh, and yet to provide uh, some benefit to the to the Burmese people. A lot of, a lot of the monks do not are not able to make a, a similar balancing act. Other monks that are um, directed towards public service uh, end up being shut down by the generals. The generals sometimes take over a monastic college. They want to run it. And um, so um, this is, you know, another instance, you know, him trying to keep a very delicate balance. I kind of question his judgment He's 84 years old now. He's always been unusually sharp. You know, you can tell by his sense of humor. He understands my jokes even. And, um, but, uh, you know, I think he's he's wearing out. Ooh, Osada uh, thinks that he's also getting very bad information. There is the wider question of how how much of the Sangha is supporting military. Uosid actually estimates it's probably about 30% of the Sangha. So this is a, a further issue, but he doesn't include Sibi Gustiero. Um, another monk here, uh, I asked him how much, how many, uh, what Sangha he thinks support the military. He says about 10% which is a figure I like better. Um, the, um, uh, anyway, Uosega says that uh, some of the monks close to Sivi Gusieta, uh are pro-military. Uh, he named a couple that I, are, are monks that I know personally, uh, and they take, pro-military positions, and he thinks that these monks are actually giving him distorted views of what's going on in, in Myanmar. Um, so there is probably a information deficit from, uh, from his side, uh, perhaps uh, very poor judgment, uh, and perhaps factors that we just, we just don't understand. You know, what I don't see is him ever advocating violence. He does have some anti-Muslim tendencies, which we can talk about, that I'm uh, aware of. 
uh, but they're not violent. Um, and, and his behavior has, uh, has indicated that. What are they? What are those anti-Muslim tendencies you noticed? Well, he, he, he kind of, he does buy into the, uh, the narrative uh, that Buddhism is in danger over, you know, over large um, historical uh, span of time that Buddhism has gradually been losing ground to Islam, which is true. And, uh, but that, that uh, Islam is, is kind of a danger to, uh, uh, to Buddhism. He also is somewhat of a, somewhat of a nationalist. We can talk about that too, because he, he, he's really not affiliated with Mabatha or, or uh, you know the extreme nationalist Witatu, as he's often reported to be in uh, in the press, um, he does have, uh, tend to think of Muslims as uh, in Myanmar as as guests mm. in uh, in a uh, in a Buddhist uh, Burman country. You know where where the the Burmans are the defining culture and uh, right. And Buddhism is the defining religion of that culture. Uh, so he does he does kind of buy into, into the narrative. And um, uh, I understand from people that have followed his speech in, uh, in Burmese that talks in Burmese, uh, there's a lot more anti-Muslim language than, mm. than when he talks in English. Mm-hmm. It's it's something comparable. It's 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 not advocating violence, but uh, it's it's like what you find in America. I I know a lot of people that are very well educated people, but you start talking about Islam and they say, mm-hmm. "Oh, Islam's a religion of violence." Uh, they they read Sam Harris or, or Richard Spencer and pick up all of the ideas, and um, and and see you see kind of belongs to that crowd but these people don't advocately advocate violence uh, mm-hmm. they may right. uh, you know some of them will they support these wars we've got going uh, or that we've had going against Muslim populations um, and so in a sense they, they uh, maybe maybe support a degree of violence but um but I've never known Sirigu Seattle. He certainly does um, teach these things to his disciples. So his disciples are, are largely um, protesters against the coup. A, uh, a big protest, I don't know when it was, that left his, the main monastery in Sagaing Hills uh, and just a parade of monks that left and took to the streets uh, since the coup, uh, and he he does not restrict the politics of hmm. of any of his disciples at all, or discuss it. He considers himself to be non. Says I don't do politics. Hmm. Yeah. What you said just now, it kind of reminds me about like that older uncle that 
says those things at the Thanksgiving table that just kind of make everyone cringe and feel uncomfortable. And, you know, he has those views. And of course, the big difference is that Siddiqui Sayada is not the older uncle at the table. He's the most powerful monk in Myanmar and someone who has the ear of the top generals. Uh, I agree with that completely. I, it's, a, it's a source of trust that Sita Gusieto is that, is that uncle at the table. I, I should um, mention, though, that he, he has done um, uh, a lot of work, in, including founding hospitals in Muslim communities. So he's had the Muslim population in his, uh, in, in his projects and right. actually has, has brought a lot of bit. So it's not like he has a very strict prejudice that right. dehumanizes Muslims. He he sees them as as people, but he he, he has a distrust for Islam. Yeah, people can be complicated, and there could be uh, definitely in our own lives, we can think of people that have some kind of progressive and humane values towards others, but then when it's behind closed doors, even with what they're doing, they're just, there's these statements from an older generation that just kind of make you cringe of uh, like, oh, don't, you know, I'm glad you're saying that away from everyone else I know, but I really wish you weren't saying that at all, that kind of thing. Of course, as mentioned, the stakes are just so much higher with him, given how important he is. and it, it means he does responsibility to keep informed, to, to you know, hear about what he's, what yeah. he's talking about. Yes, Because yes, some of those right. things have made me cringe. Yeah. It's yeah. very common in Myanmar, um, uh, although there is uh, apparently much, much more again uh, among the generalist population since the coup for the plight of the Rohingya in other other uh, uh, populations. You mentioned before this delicate balance that he's trying to tread, that he is trying to do all of these incredible humanitarian projects that he has single-handedly brought to fruition over the course of his career and that you laid out how he made something of a devil's bargain to come back to Myanmar and not be involved in politics, whatever that means, since the military controls everything, everything kind of becomes politics. But in any regard, that he's able to to try to navigate what he sees as being able to run these humanitarian programs and not step on or criticize what the military is doing, even when it's egregious human rights. Along with that, there, I also wonder how much he buys into this idea of the Tamada protecting Buddhism, that, um, that Buddhism is somehow under threat, whether it's of Muslims or Westerners or modernization or a good economy or freedom or democracy or whatever it is, that somehow the Tamada is fulfilling its self-proclaimed purpose of preserving traditional Burmese Buddhist values. And so whatever else it's doing is unfortunate, but that part of this devil's bargain is that these traditional lay Sangha relationships get to remain as is. And however that's seen, there is this, this delicate balance of what what he's able to do, what he might want to do, where the risk is one way or the other. And let's be real here. The, there's a risk in whatever he does, whatever, whatever action he chooses to do or not do, there is going to be an immense risk in that. And so I'm wondering if you were to put yourself in his shoes or if you were to be able 
to advise him and suggest a course forward knowing that there are no easy answers, there are no easy solutions, the stakes are as high as they have ever been, probably in any of our lifetimes, in Myanmar at least, that, uh, and that he is one of the most important people in this entire conflict in terms of what he decides to do or not do, uh, recognizing how difficult the conditions are, what would you like to see him do? What would you like to advise him to do? Um, I've, I've, I've told Uoda my advice uh, the, and, and said he should pass it on to Sita Gusieto, and that is leave the country and take a very strict anti-coup, military, um, make some very stri- uh, clear statements mm-hmm. uh, against the military, against the, the coup. Um, I, I think at this point, uh, he would sacrificing all of his social service program. Uh, it would be uncertain when it happened to them. Uh, a lot of people that are employees in uh, programs may suffer. But the population of Myanmar is sacrificing so much right. since the coup. Yeah. Everybody's giving up things. And uh, I hear a lot of stories. Almost all, all of the Burmese in America are refugees from militarality. So you hear from the, the communities here um, that uh, the sufferatives, uh, as well as what they went through in, in previous decades, um, people are giving up such. They're giving up their health because mm-hmm. COVID. Because of the disruption, it's it's just run rapid. People are dying all over the place from COVID. Um, people are giving up their livelihoods, uh, their safety. They're running into the, the villages. Uh, but they're very determined, and they're going to stick it out. I think the opposition, my estimation is, you know, is, uh, is I'm not, uh, not an expert in these things. I, I would guess that the opposition is going to, prevail. It may take a long time. Almost all the Burmese people I talk to say, who's going to win this? They always say the, you know, the opposition, the militaries, they're going to be out of there because people are so determined. Uh, Unfortunately, the opposition is also getting uh, violent. Um, And um, uh, yeah, you know, I, 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 I think it is is turning into civil war type condition. Right, and that's all the more space that he could step into unequivocally about what his position could be and how, you know, I think that in my, we talked about this a month ago uh, before this interview or our views on this. I think that the first few months of the protest, there really was a call among lay people for where are our Buddhist guides, where are our monastic figures. And this especially the case because 2007 was so much led by monks and because there's this counterintuitive thing whereby renouncing a society and renouncing everything a society can offer you, you actually 
somehow have greater standing in that society as long as you act in that appropriate role. And so monks do have this spiritual, moral, ethical power and ability to shape things that ordinary people do not just by the livelihood that they've chosen. And over those first few months, I think we saw a lot of especially the younger generation, looking towards those monks to see what the response would be. And there was a range, a cycle of emotions that went from feeling hopeful to confused to disappointed to angry and then to just irrelevant, just to I've got to move on with my life. And I had these conversations with many people that they they were too at risk, they were too harried, they were... They were too there. They were too scared about how to survive and what needed to be done, and there was so much to figure out that they had just come to a kind of calm acceptance that these monks are worthless right now. They are not relevant in the struggle we're having. They the the one time when we need to have them voice for us and speak for us, they're silent. And it was a move beyond anger to just irrelevance. To just this is we'll figure this out later, but for now, these are non-entities. And when I saw that happen, it really made me wonder about the fault lines that would be drawn from this, regardless of how it turns out, how you would go back to that relationship once you started to move in a direction of realizing that they're they're not playing a role in your life when you need them the most to be able to, to do or say something. And I think that uh, that if there's this argument to be made that, the, that somehow the Tamada is protecting Buddhism, this kind of fiction that they're planning, I think it's really plain to see that right. even if the Tamada were to win, there's no – I think there's very little Buddhism to protect there among the younger generation because this is drawing a gap and a cleavage between what they see as the role of the monks and what they want in their lives. And I think if – a, if any monk, and especially a monk as high as Sittagu, were to, within their monk's roles, because obviously with Vinaya, there's things that monks can and can't do, and no one is advocating for someone to say they're a monk and then lead a revolution because that's not appropriate. But within their monastic roles and discipline, for a monk to be able to speak unequivocally towards moral rights and wrongs and uh, and show their value to this current moment, I, I think they would really just become the darling and the hero and beloved uh, for the moral courage they're showing. And those few monks that have shown that moral courage have stepped into that role. But I think by playing it safe and conservative, there's not going to be much left to save no matter how things turn out. Yeah, the, it's, it's very unfortunate. And of course, Sita Gucciato in uh, 1988 was one of those monks that stepped forward mm. and showed a, showed a lot of courage. Right. Uh, he's, of course, is you know has more at stake now because of the size of his projects. Uh, he's much more famous now, which means he'll be shut down within hours probably if he if he makes too courageous um and that's why i you know i I think he should leave the country and and make these um i think you make a good point that um because um things are turning towards civil war where there's violence on both sides you now have uh 
people in the op are actually physically attacking uh, military families, relatives of, of soldiers, so that they relocate them into the army bases in many places. Um, you have people setting off bombs uh, now, blowing up uh, 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 suicide bombers that, that uh, just walk into a group of soldiers and blow themselves up. Uh, that this be very protracted, and at some point, if it is turning to civil war, uh, somebody has to step forward and say, "This enough is. It's time for reconciliation. We've won. You know, now we have to stop this. But the violence can go on, continue for a long time if you do not have that moral authority." The, and um, and it's a role Sidi could play, and I I, th I think he could play it well if he didn't lose his entire reputation before then. Hmm. You mentioned that Osada also knows Minamlang personally and doesn't think highly of him. Can you share more what his interactions and his evaluation is? Yeah. Well, this is. This is one of the, you know, this is part of the Faustian bargain, I think, with um, the the monks and the generals. The, the generals are very generous donors to the Sangha, just as Ng was before. And um, and so um, uh, the the, uh, the uh, general uh, Mion Lang has um, actually been a donor to some of U Osada's projects. I understand his main connection is with is with the general's wife, but um but he uh you know he feels free if he's working on a project and needs some more funding, he he will, you know, phone phone the general up. What his attitude is since this uh, uh since the coup is you know no more money from the generals is turning his bowl upside down essentially. And um, he would like to see Sita Gusiero do that too. Mm. Uh, but so far, Sita Gusiero has not. Has he reached out to the general and at least tried to speak to him and, and advise him? Oh, probably not. Um, mm. I, you know, I, I, I don't know at this time. It would be, uh, it, it would seem it's kind of futile. So, you know, there, there's a certain, I, I, I really don't know if it remains in Myanmar. There's not much he can do. He can kind of, in his speeches, kind of lean one way, but if he goes there, he'll be shut down. And, uh, uh, you know, maybe that's worth the cost, but it means he loses his voice immediately. Nobody will hear from him again. Mm. Right. Uh as I mentioned before, I surveyed my audience, letting them know that we'd be having this conversation. And there's a few questions that have come up that I'd like to ask on listeners' behalf. So one, we'll start off with a simple question that is probably not a simple answer. What is Sitiku Seda's views on democracy? I think he's always been pro-democracy. That's my, um, uh, my, my impression. 
1988. He's been, he's been, see, I haven't heard him talk specifically about democracy. Again, uh, he doesn't do politics. So in the uh, election in uh, 2015 that brought, brought Aung San Suu Kyi to power, um, both sides during the election, both the uh, military party and the uh, National League for Democracy, Aung San Suu Kyi's party, were wooing him to try to get some endorsement, some involvement. He refused. He would not take sides. He wouldn't. He uh, he does teach monks that they should not get involved in partisan politics, uh, which is something I I agree with. I I, I don't always uh, adhere to it myself, but. But I, I, th I think there is a risk for monks to get involved in, in uh, partisan politics, because you lose track of the, uh, of the middle way, when you do that. But, um, uh, but anyway, that's that's his philosophy. Don't monks do not get involved in, in politics. They are a moral voice. I think he agrees with that. But. Um, um, but it's it's uh, difficult to be in a moral voice in in a autocracy. So another question is: Do you think that the monastic education and lifestyle in Myanmar equips monks with the tools to be able to deal and give guidance towards the political situation that has been occurring in Myanmar over the last six decades? Uh, no, <laughs> mm. I don't. I don't think so. You know, one of the things I, I believe monks, although they should be involved in partisan politics, to be a moral voice, you have to understand how the economy works, society works, or at least try to understand. Very few people understand. And, um, I, I think education is a deficit. Monastic education focuses on learning scriptures. And... Um, but monks, you know, in the West, uh, clergy are part of the intelligentsia. People are, expect them to be educated and know how the world works, uh, know about a lot of things. I think Cito Guciero does promote education in these areas uh, of uh, understanding science and, and uh, society and economics. He, he's all for promoting Western-style education, but it's at a very primitive level now in Myanmar. So people in general are very confused. Of course, people in, in the United States are as well. <laughs> right. Yeah. But definitely there are those in the country that are calling on, have been calling for some time on monastic reform, and especially as modernity comes to Myanmar and trying to find a way to make the monastic structure continue to be relevant and practical and applicable applicable even when the times around them are changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think Peter Guciero is, um, is, is very uh, important in that area because he has a great respect for uh, Western education. Mm. He does not have a Western education himself. In a lot of ways, he's he's talked uh, called Doctor Doctor Nyanistara because he has a lot of honorary, several mm. honorary PhDs, but he's mm. never actually earned a uh, a uh, college degree at the 
you know, uh, Western-style university education or, or the kind of education you could get in, in China or India or, or Japan. Um, and so in, in a lot of ways, he's, he's, I think he's very, very naive. And uh, there are a lot of things he, he does not understand. And so the next question is, uh, and I should reference that I'm going to read these questions exactly as they came. Some of them you might debate with the assumptions in the question, and you can feel free to do that. But I, I'm, I'm, and some of them come from a place of very high emotion, as you can imagine, but I'm, I'm just yeah. going to read them as they appear. How does Siddhaguseta reconcile the most essential aspects of the Dhamma, that being wisdom, compassion, non-harming, and indeed something that's found root in Burma, Burmese Vipassana, with the Sayada's overt and tacit support for the genocidal junta and the violent Tamada? Uh, he does not support him. So I, I, you know, I, I think the the assumption is uh, is is wrong. I I see no statements of his ad advocating violence. Uh, I see very unskillful statements, statements that can be misleading and uh, can be dangerous uh, when uh, when others take them seriously. But I I see no overt. Um, endorsement or support of, of violence. Hmm. Right. And I think at this time, what that's indicating is that there is a messaging problem then, if that's the case, because if you were to ask most Burmese Buddhists today where Sitagu stood, and if you were to ask a non-Burmese or a non-Buddhist that was there, it would even be more so. Overwhelmingly, the view is that he is very aware of what he's doing, and he has very clearly shown his support to one side. And that is a view that is becoming more and more entrenched. And that is also why an interview like this is so important, because it's trying to provide this nuance. Uh, it's trying to provide this greater context and discussion. So it's not these easy blanket characterizations. But I think that that is something that has very much taken root. And I think that, as I mentioned before about the uh, 2017 speech, the fact that on, in so many of these cases, in Moscow, the Napida statue, the killings, uh, et cetera, that his silence has shown a complicitness. It has been read by both sides to be complicit. And so that view has been further held and entrenched among the people. So I guess a follow-up question to that would be is how, how does this get brokered? How, how, does, how is Sitagu able to correct the record? Or if he's not able to correct the record, then how should the people or should the people at all begin to respond differently or, or feel differently? Yeah. So, you know, reliable information is very hard to get. And you, a lot of people that have, um, you know, believe something to be the case when it's not. Look at Americans believe that Obama was a, uh, a Muslim and not born in the United States. Um, the um, the, the uh, uh, part of it is 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 the fault of the news media. Part of it is is, is interpretation. When uh, uh, when you allow the 
and girls to have photo ops with you over and over again, you will give the impression that you're in what they're doing, that, that you're allied with them. Um, Cita Gutierrez to smile for the camera with all kinds of people, but I think the I think the generals have been successful in in, in manipulating him these, to get these photo ops, and um, he's been you know very naive, stubborn, uninformed, uh, you know unclear about exactly what's going on. Uh, but I, but I know from, uh, you know, talk, not not spending a lot of time myself with him, but his disciples and 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 familiarity with life and and uh, his um, uh, his his works and his attitudes about about many things that he is. Uh, I, I see no indication that he's ever advocates violence. So he, he gives it an impression. But this is, you know, this is when you're in a in a position, in a prominent position, it's hard to control the public perception. This is why pins are so scripted. They're, they have advised them, don't say this. Uh, you know, if, if somebody asks about this, tell them this. Um and uh and he's he's not he's not that that scripted. I think um you know, Aunt Sun Suchi might be a, a, a parallel case. She basically has also has a pact with the devil, or did until the coup. She had to work in close um, cooperation with the generals, the way she did, you know, in a different sphere, uh, because it was the only chance of evolving a, a more complete democracy and so she ends up getting blamed for a lot of the things that the generals did like the whole Ro Rohingya thing mm. I don't know to what extent she might have been complicit but I, I, I think that probably her situation is similar to Cita Gucciero's that uh, she she has to be very careful because they, they could have I mean, before the coup, they could have put her out of business very quickly, which they did. Yeah, and that actually leads to the next question that someone asked. And this is that many Buddhist nationals embraced the military after the 2013 riots in Rakhine State. I regard Sitagu Sayada as one of them. Do you consider that correct? Uh, no. One, one one incident probably uh, says says something about this. In um, 2012, there was uh, a lot of uh, violence in the Rohingya Rakhine State, and um, it was it was triggered by the the rape and murder of a Rakhine woman. So the Rakhine are are they're not um, they're not Burmans. They speak a language. They are an ethnic group that has had a lot of tension themselves with the uh, central government of Myanmar and with the the military uh, traditionally. 
most of the violence that has happened uh, before the um, military genocide was uh, was between the Rakhine people and the uh, uh, and the Rohingya. So in in um, 2012, this uh, flared up, and um, there uh, there were riots all over uh, the Rakhine state, uh, and it happened that. Um, uh, that Cida Guciero actually was uh, part of a interfaith meeting with, um, it's called the Conference on Interfaith Security and Coexistence. I wrote down the name of it. It was actually convened by a um, uh, Muslim imam from the Islamic Center of, of, of Ma, but, it, but held at the uh, Sidigu Monastery. Uh, where they had meeting space. Cities often in, uh, involved in, in interfaith work, which is a little perplexing because he, he does have this kind of undercurrent of uh, anti-Muslim uh, uh, feeling or uh, distrust against uh, Islam. But his um, efforts has, have always been oriented toward toward peace, maintaining the peace at all costs. So during this conference, which is in, oh, it was in 2013, there was a uh, October, and uh, there was a flare-up of the nation in uh, Rakhine's. And, and so the um, imam and Sidi Gusieto agreed to travel there together and, um, uh, and, travel around and address the populations, go from village to village, to Rakhine villages, to Muslim villages, and um, and and talk about peace and, and reconciliation. Um, and uh, so this is the kind of effort he, he would make. Uh, there was one village that had violence, uh, uh, were, were the Kaman uh, Muslims, which are a recognized ethnic group in Myanmar, and unlike the Rohingya. They're, they're separate from the Rohingya, but they're often mistaken from the Rohingya, and so they, they their village was attacked by, by Rakhine people. And so that's one of the villages they did, and uh, one of the things in that village, the, the um, city Gusieto promised to... Um, uh, that he would raise funds to build them a school and a, uh, a health clinic and uh, or a, uh, a hospital is really our what we would call clinics um, and uh, any any followed through on the on the promise so his his efforts have have been you know he, even though he, he he looks at Muslims as kind of a superior his uh, his efforts have been you know for their welfare and for for maintaining peace so I, I know of no statements um, about the Rohingya situation I should ask U Osada what what he has said but I think he's largely remained quiet which is un unfortunate, but maybe a necessity. Yeah, I think it's that quiet combined with some of the tacit 
what seems as tacit approval or support with, uh, the, as you call them, photo ops, the uh, going to consecration and blessing ceremonies at, at the wrong time and the wrong place with the wrong people and, uh, and being seen uh, accepting donations from others. I think that it's uh, – that, that all of this – Give this combined with an almost complete silence on the other side certainly gives the impression and the feeling among many that has now really taken root and become something of a of a fact and, and an understanding from many people now that his real feelings and sympathy for whatever reason that's that's debated but for whatever reason they they do lie with the military and I think that's a very widespread belief now. I yeah, I realize it is, and and I but I don't think it's right. Mm. On the other side now, another question is, what is his reaction to the criticism that has been targeted towards him? Does criticism from pro democracy activists shift his stance even more towards the military, or is there some openness or consideration? You know, is is uh, you know, in my discussions with U Osada, almost everything goes through U Osada's mm. channel. Um, but um, I think he does not really recognize, uh, you know, what's going on. I don't think he's getting feedback uh, about it. And uh, there seems to be a dearth of, of information on his part because he doesn't. Uosida uh, uh, seems, as I said, Uosida seems to have convinced him that there's a problem here. Uh, that there's a problem of public perception, mm. and he seems to have taken it to heart. But he he refused to listen to Osada for a long time, uh, which is very unfortunate. Is there any appeal to him that you think could be effective? You know, if Osada can't make it, I don't think anybody can. Mm. He 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 thinks very very highly of Osada. Uh, they're very close, and there are some other other monks like that. But as I say, some of his disciples are actually pro-military. This happens usually if uh, somebody is in a military family. So some monks belong to military families, and military families get special perks. This is one of the ways that the military ensures loyalty of the uh, the loyalty of the soldiers. They get. They get, um, actually, I think handouts like rice distributions and things, but also uh, priority and hiring for government jobs and, and that. And so um, some some um, do belong to military fans and tend to have a, uh, a pro-military um, position. Most Burmese seem to get their news through Facebook, and we all know what Facebook does. <laughs> mm. it, uh, it, it, it blocks out the news that you, you don't hear the news that you disagree with. You hear more and more, uh, it becomes an echo chamber. You hear your own views repeated back at you. And uh, I know Sita Guciato doesn't use Facebook because he's, uh, rather computer illiterate, hmm. but uh, he, um, but those around him do. Some of his uh, monks and some of his pro-military monks. So I, I think he is in kind of a bubble that is not hmm. 
you know, the whole situation is not getting through to him. Mm. Right. Right. So the last question I have for you, I think I've asked this to you already in a different form, but I want to ask it in these words. Uh, it's quite emotional. It's quite direct. And I also want to ask it again because it is kind of the final summation of this talk, of the final evaluation, everything up to this point, we then get to the so what, uh, what, what can happen, what could happen. So if there's anything you want to add or expand to the, the way this was asked before, in any case, here's the question. Presumably, as Sitiku Sayada's biographer and former resident monk under his tutelage in Burma, you know the Venerable Sayada as well as any Westerner in the world. As we enter the ninth month of this horrific military coup in Burma, commandeered by the rogue terrorist general Menon Lang, if you were sitting face-to-face with Sitiku Sayada and he asked you, please, what is your most honest advice to me to do my part as Myanmar's most prominent bhikkhu to end Menon Lang's reign of terror? murdering, torturing, raping the population in his, in his unbridled attempt to destroy the people's desire for freedom and democracy. I ask you to be frank, bold, and most of all, give me the gift of your uncensored honesty. I want to know your most heartfelt truth. And moreover, I want to do what is best for the people of my country, not what's best for the military and Minang Lang, but for the people. Give it to me straight. Well, I agree with all of the presuppositions of that of that question. Uh, and again, I I, I think Sita Gusiela is a very delicate position. But uh, my my own feeling is that since the Myanmar people are sacrificing so much to oppose this coup, uh, Sita Gusiela should as well. And I think probably, as I, as I, I actually said before, the best recommendation I, I could give him would be to leave the country and uh, stand outside of the country. He could come here to Austin to live. Um, and uh, he, he, there are many other places throughout the world, England, but um, that he, he, he should take a bold stand. Uh, I think this is really his moment. Unfortunately, I, I don't think he recognizes that. Well, thank you so much for this time spent with us. And before we close, is there anything else you want to say to what will probably be a very robust audience around the world listening to this? Okay, so I guess my my point, uh, what I'm what I'm contributing to this discussion is uh, a sense of how nuanced and complex this situation is. I think public perceptions are often wrong. And especially world where everything's pushed, everything is is black and white. Sita Gusieto is, I think, has stood up for some uh, very powerful principles consistently throughout his career. He's aging. Uh, he's in a situation that I, I, I'm guessing he does not fully understand. And. Um, 
and he's not dealing with it very skillfully. But I think his heart is in the right place. Uh, and uh, so I hope people will listen to this and 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 try to understand the nuances. It's it's really not not black and white. I think through history you'll see a lot of instances like like this. You have to ask what what the churches did in Europe during World War II to oppose the Nazis, and people are disappointed that they did not do a lot. But you have to ask what. What what could they did? How, what could they do? How of that that would how would that have played out? Uh, what are the factors involved? Um, so uh, I don't understand Cedar Gucciato completely myself. Uh, I do have the luxury of uh, a bit of insight or the privilege of some insight into what's going on in the inner circle. Uh, I don't have any stake in endorsing him or or not. I would like to see, uh, I, uh, you know, I, I, I do not want him to be misrepresented. Certainly, if he is a genocidal monk, as people call him, uh, I would want to understand that and I'll condemn him as much as anybody else. But uh, but I don't see that in in Cedicuciero. Well, thank you for your comments. Thank you for taking this time. It's you've added incredibly valuable input for the discussion. I think we all have a lot to reflect on, and I am looking forward to seeing where that reflection goes among myself and among listeners, and seeing this as the beginning, hopefully the beginning of a conversation where we can continue to explore and that hopefully some benefit can be found through this kind of difficult consideration. Yeah, well, thank you for um, for inviting me and thank you for providing this platform and for, for all of all that you do, Joa. Um, and uh, I, I hope this leads to uh, to some some thinking. Uh, if people have comments, no no hate mail. We we get <laughs> hate mail uh, concerning Cedar Gucciato. Um, uh, but uh, you know, con constructive conversation. If anybody thinks I've misunderstood something and has better information, then please let, let me know or yes. listen to it. Yes. I've been, as I say, I've been on both sides of this. I, I, uh, I once was convinced that the, the whole Rohingya sermon was, uh, was accurately interpreted uh, and, and, until I learned otherwise um, and uh, was ready to condemn Cid Gustiero myself. But... Um, it's a very, very difficult time. I realize emotions are very high. They're very high. I, I just see it in the Burmese community all the time. Um, and um, but um, we need to, you know, keep cool heads and think through this rationally and carefully. One of the most tragic aspects of the current crisis in Myanmar is how isolated Burmese protesters feel, and in fact are. 
This has been compounded by bank closures, and as a result, ordinary wire transfers are not possible. Thankfully, through a trusted local network, we're able to ensure that all donations successfully reach their intended target. So if you found yourself moved by today's discussion and want to do what you can to help, please consider giving to our fund, which is 100% directed towards supporting the movement. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are resisting the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Every cent goes immediately and directly to funding those local communities who need it most. Donations go to support such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, families of deceased victims, and the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies. Or if you prefer, you can earmark your donation to go directly to the guest you just heard on today's show. In order to facilitate this donation work, we have registered a new nonprofit called Better Burma for this express purpose. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is now directed to this fund. Alternatively, you can visit our new Better Burma website, which is betterburma.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause, and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at In all cases, that's Better Burma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration. <laughs>